The following message is by Pastor Eric Ludy. More information about the church at Ellerslie is available at www.ellerslie.com. I'm somewhat partial to this title. Uh, and it, even just the title gets me excited. Now, uh, those that are of a feminist persuasion uh, may be wondering why it just says the measurement of a man and not the measurement of a woman. I would like to say that this message encompasses femininity. However, it's going to be specifically directed towards manhood because the template or the type that we will be studying is not a woman, it's a man. And his name is Jesus Christ. And for those that have tried to neuter Jesus Christ and say that he is both male and female, he was a man. And there is nothing diminishing or derogatory about that towards femininity. I'm a huge fan of femininity. And in fact, it's hard to find a guy who is a bigger fan of femininity than me. I've written at least, I mean, what would you say, Les? There has to be at least 14 books that we've written, less than I've written, where I have given great portions of these books dedicated to the advancement and the championing of great godly femininity. So, that said... I am going to give a message called The Measurement of a Man, and I am going to not make any excuses as I go through that I am talking about a man. However, I would encourage all the women in here to take the application to themselves. As you will see, we are talking about the measurement of Jesus Christ. Now, this past week, we we mentioned uh, in school here uh, at Ellerslie, we were talking about the measurement of the Ezekiel Temple. And so you have this angel of the Lord that comes down and with a rod measures out the house of the Lord and then basically says to Ezekiel, show these measurements to the people of Israel that they would basically be convicted of their sin. What, why would measurements of a house bring any conviction to anyone unless the measurements were not of just a mere house They were the measurements of something, and that's the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. The Ezekiel temple is a picture of righteousness. And there is a pattern as shown in the word of God for how a man ought to be. And then 2,000 years ago, on the stage of time, a man was born. And his name was Jesus. And he was tested against the entirety of the Old Testament measurements. He was measured and found to be perfect. And it was the measurement of a man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so let's talk about the measurement of a man. First of all, uh, as we go into this, uh, let's at least start with this scripture. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58 is just a bold and brawny scripture and chapter in the Bible. It It is just loaded with force. And typically we know it as the chosen fast or God's fast. This is the fast that I esteem, says the Lord. But there is a statement that flows out of this. It's the statement of the way the church is to live and to demonstrate itself. And then out of it, it basically says, And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. This is the result of a great man. A great man, out of him, out of his life, flows world changers. When the church is healthy, it breeds this exact thing. That they shall be of thee, they that be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. The church of Jesus Christ today, for good reason, has fallen under ridicule. When we are measured against the template or the text of Scripture, we are found wanting. There is something missing. And we live in, in in the midst of a weak generation, a weak generation morally, a weak generation spiritually, and there is something that needs to alter. And I would make the appeal that what needs to alter is the nature of its men. Because when men are altered, when men become as they ought to be, 
everything else falls into alignment. There is nothing more difficult than a woman attempting to be who a woman ought to be when men are not as they should be. And we could go into great detail into that, but you could talk about it just in the context of marriage. There is nothing more challenging than for a woman to be as Scripture encourages her to be and exhorts her to be than when her man is not as he ought to be. Now, one of the tendencies we have is we have, especially amongst women, is to sort of nod our heads at such a statement and get great glee out of it. It's like, absolutely. And then the old elbow to the ribs, you know, of the poor guy sitting next to you. Uh, That is the most ineffective way, by the way, to motivate a man is the old elbow to the rib. Uh, It doesn't work. It's also known as nagging, okay? And nagging isn't the form of motivation that works on men. It's really fascinating because from a woman's, woman's vantage point, I'm going to say something about it. It's just a truth. Women have a clearer idea of what men ought to be than men do. And I'm not exactly sure why God did it this way. Why a woman knows that a man shouldn't be like this and he should be something so much more noble. And we as guys are like, what's wrong with the way I am? And then we let out a burp. Uh, in other words, we can't oftentimes see it. But a woman, for some reason, sees something. She sees a nobility. She sees a dignity. She sees a strength. She sees a rescuer. She sees a hero. And she knows what a man ought to be. But most women finally just convince themselves that such men do not exist, and they settle. And they settle for the burper scratcher. They settle for something so much less, and they constantly, for the rest of their life, have to deny that they ever had such a vision. But here's the interesting thing. Women have a vision of what a man ought to be, but they oftentimes don't know how to motivate a man to become that, which is where the nagging comes from. Nagging, by definition, is a woman with a vision, but without the tools to know how to enable and ennoble the men in their life. Okay, so... I'm not going to necessarily, and I'm sort of leaving this if I don't actually share with the girls how to motivate in a noble, uh, because it's like, let's move on. And they're like, well, great, you just leave us as naggers. Uh, one of the worst things you could ever say to a man is, I told you so. It doesn't work on men to nag. It doesn't work on men to say, you should be so much better. To encourage where a man is at And to esteem the strengths in that man are some of the surest ways to get that man to continue to progress. You show respect and honor for where a man is, and you pray, diligently pray, for the vision of great masculinity to open up in his life. It's a spiritual thing. I was changed as a man by a woman. And I know know the right thing would be to say my mom or my sister or my wife, but this is before I met Leslie, I was in college and I read a book written in 1820 about William Wallace and I'd never seen a picture of a man quite like it. And in hindsight, I have to admit, it was just a picture of Jesus Christ. That's what it was. But I'd never seen Jesus as more than just the, the, the shepherd that held lambs and, and coddled children. And I saw it. I saw a vision of such strength and grandeur, courage, majestic presence And yet he was sensitive and he was humble and he would give his life for the weak and the least. You put a child in front of him and he would be hit by a train willingly to protect that child. I'd never seen it and it deeply moved me. But what's weird is that this book, Scottish Chiefs, was written by a woman. It was a woman with a clear vision. And however she did it and however she handled it, she passed on to me a vision of what masculinity was to be. That doesn't mean just because a guy catches a vision that he's suddenly a finished product, which is very frustrating. I don't know if you've ever felt that in your Christianity. You catch a vision of Christianity of Jesus Christ, you behold him, and then you're sort of frustrated because you're not finished. It's like, hey, I believed, I I said the prayer, how come I'm still a mess? Well, there's a process every day of putting one foot in front of the other and taking steps forward in the strides of what you've been called to. One of the things I've I've taught for uh, quite a few years is what I call the 10 degrees of manhood. Now, I've actually never taught it the way I'm going to teach it today. This is wholly new. I've never given this message in my life. However, I want to give you a little nutshell of what I have taught. And that is that what I'm typically doing is I'm at a girls' conference when I'm sharing this. 
And I'm, I know it sounds strange that I would be at a girls' conference, uh, but I have been at many girls' conferences, and I've been the only guy in, in there. Uh, and uh, so I'm very comfortable with it now. We used to joke about it, how uncomfortable Eric is. It's just like, you know, there's no need to joke anymore. I'm just comfortable. I'm fine. I've been here many times. And so I'm standing in front of a, a whole, you know, host of, of young women, and I'm teaching them about what a marriageable man is. And so basically I'm saying... It's okay to have standards, but you need to know when a man is marriageable. You need to know when he's not, and you need to know when he is. And so I said, from my personal vantage point of dealing on the front lines and the issues of sexuality, dealing with men for so many years, here's what I'll tell you. This is my opinion. This isn't just straight out of the Word of God. This is reasoned out of the Word of God. And so what I do is I go through and I say, if man was sort of defined from zero to ten, you know what a ten is a ten. Now we, we sort of rate people. It's like, that's a 10, which means perfect. And a zero means a zero, okay? They haven't even started yet, okay? And the, first of all, I say, do not marry a zero. Can't tell you how many girls need that advice. Do not marry a zero. I know it's profound. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a good, good thing. Thanks for sharing that with me, Eric. Do not marry a zero. A zero is one who has never caught the vision of what, who Jesus is or what a man is supposed to be. If that guy has not even caught the vision, because there's Christian men all over planet Earth that are zeros. The fact that they go to church and the fact that they call themselves Christians, the fact that they gave a prayer somewhere in their past does not mean they are marriageable. They may very likely be a zero, which means they are not even evidencing at the most basic levels the grandeur, the majesty, and the nobility of heaven come to earth in and through a man. Because what Christianity is in a nutshell, it is a supernatural demonstration of Jesus Christ in and through the skin of a man or a woman. It is the fleshing out, if you will, of the behavior of heaven. And this doesn't happen because we say, oh yeah, I think Jesus was a good man. It doesn't mean anything. If you historically understand, it's like, oh yeah, Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote that Jesus was real. So I believe it. I believe that he actually was there. Isn't that what the Bible says? All you need to do is believe? Mental assent is different than belief. Faith is what the essence of belief is, which is you know it is true. And if you know that Jesus Christ died for you, and you know that he's the only source that you have for hope and life, that if you don't turn to him and give your life to him, you have nothing. Then you act upon it. Belief always is demonstrated through action. So if you believe something, your life demonstrates that you believe it. But if you believe that Jesus is just some historic character, it doesn't make any difference in your life because you also believe that Hitler was a historic character. Hopefully. I know that there's been some revision of history, but hopefully you know that just because Jesus is historic and Hitler is historic doesn't mean you have the essence of who they are in you. You probably have more Hitler in you than Jesus. That was a tough one, wasn't it? Uh, That's what my mom always told me growing up. So by the way, I'm just passing on what my mom told me. Eric, you have all the potential to be just like Hitler. Okay, so I unfortunately just sort of spewed out there in that moment. Uh, Okay, so the 10 degrees of manhood, basically what I say is, at the zero level, do not marry the guy. Okay, what's a one? A one is a man who has caught the vision. He has seen it. He has seen who Jesus Christ is. He has seen what masculinity is supposed to be. And as I always tell the girls, he's gotten up on the white steed. And he said, charge! In other words, he's emerging as a man. There is a transformation. There is an entrance of Jesus Christ into his life, even if it be at a very basic level. There is a demonstration of something on planet Earth. The nobility has come from heaven and been planted inside of this man. There's a change. That's a one. Do not marry a one. So again, this is my lesson to girls. You know, some of you guys in here are like, what, what do I do with this message? Uh, we'll make it more practical. Uh, and then at the two level, what's a two? You see, what happens at the one level is this man catches a vision of the grandeur of Jesus Christ, the grandeur of what masculinity is, and he goes, I want it. And he begins to head out into the endless frontiers of possibility. And he's on his white steed. And what he's not prepared for is how bumpy of a ride this is. And he's never ridden this white, white steed before. And if I could have talked with him right before he got on, I would have said, hold on tight. Because the first thing that happens to this poor guy is he gets bucked off. And he falls right down in the dirt that he'd just gotten up from to get on that white steed. And so there he is on his face in the dirt. 
Remember, we're talking about a one. And he's pondering this. This isn't a very fun experience because he esteems the grandeur of the call. But there he is in the dirt. When that man grits his teeth, rises right back up and gets back on that steed and says, charge, you have yourself a two. See, a two is a man that even though he's been bucked off, understands what the conditions are, that it is because of Jesus and not because of his own worth and value and righteousness and purity that he will continue on. And he gets back up on that steed and he says, charge. That's a two. It's a man who has passed the most basic test of manhood. And that is that when you're bucked off, you get back on. There is nothing more disgraceful than a man who gets on that horse, is bucked off, and then he runs hightail. Because he's humiliated, he's embarrassed, he's frustrated. He doesn't want this. If it's going to be tough, I didn't know how difficult it was going to be to ride upon that steed. No one told me. And so he runs off. Many a man has gone from zero to one back to zero. But one who goes from zero to one and then progresses to two is a man who has substance beginning to develop in his soul and you're beginning to see a character where he's like, yes, I realize how weak I am, but I know how strong he is. And he climbs back up on that steed and says, charge. That's a two. And I always tell girls, do not marry a two. And unfortunately, when I say that, all the girls begin to panic, especially at the two point, because one, it was like, oh, I've never seen a one. Just a guy with a vision of how great masculinity can be. I want to marry him. And then the two, I mean, we're talking about some strength here. You've, I mean, some of the girls in here are like, please, let me add him. What's his phone number? <laughs> a two, one who has been bucked off and gets back on, is still not yet prepared for what the call of marriage is. If you're a girl and you witness a two, appreciate it. It's good to see a man going through this growth process. But wait, hold back and measure him. Let him prove himself. And here's what a three is. You see, when a man gets on that white steed for the first time, and he gets bucked off, and he's laying in the dirt, and he grits his teeth, and he says, for the king and his glory, and he gets back on, and he says, Jesus, you must stabilize me. You must make me able. And he says, charge. Along this journey, he's going to be knocked off a few times. When a toddler is learning to walk, what's going to happen? They're going to fall down a few times. This is normal physiological behavior for a little toddler. And the same thing is true for spiritual development. Is in the very beginning, when you're first getting on this steed, God knows that you're a toddler. He knows that you're young in the saddle. And you will fall off. But God is measuring you. And as a woman, measure that man. Look in and say, but will he stay consistent? Because it's the man who consistently gets back up on that horse and says, charge. I know my weakness. I know I'm unable, but I know God can keep me in this saddle. And I refuse. Even if I'm in that dirt tomorrow, I refuse to accept that as normalcy in my life. And it's a man who holds on to the promises of God for victory and for triumph who begins to recognize a stability in the saddle, who begins to realize, I don't need to fall off. There's stability. It's just the toddler who suddenly doesn't need to fall down all the time. If that toddler gives up after falling down once, they may be stunted in their growth for months to come. In your spiritual walk, if you don't get back on and prove the power of God in your life, you may never know it. So what God asks is get back on. As we've said in, in Ellerslie language, wrap yourself afresh in the cloak of righteousness. You stay in Christ, or as we've also said, you stay in the plane. The plane trumps the law of gravity. The law of gravity is that dirt, and you're used to being in it. But as you enter into the plane, you enter into a higher law known as the law of aerodynamics. And as long as you remain in that plane, the law of gravity has no effect on you. You get outside the plane, and guess what? You start falling. Stay in the plane. Stay in the saddle. Stay in Jesus Christ. Stay in that cloak. And you will find yourself producing a life and a demonstration of God Almighty on, on earth. You will see heaven demonstrated in and through the skin and the behavior and the words of a man. This is how Christian maturity works. And so what I tell girls is three is a marriageable man. Not because he's finished. He's not a ten. 
I know that could seem like a compromise. Does it seem like a compromise? You know, we're, we're going to say, yeah, you can marry him, honor him in that state. It's because you're not looking for perfection in marriage. You're looking for consistency. You're looking for a man who has proven that he is headed this direction no matter how difficult it gets. Because if you have a guy who's still weighing his options, who's still looking at his lifeboat going, well, maybe I could still, you know, use that lifeboat and go this direction with my masculinity, you have danger awaiting in the future. Because marriage is rough waters. It's not easy. It takes a man to truly be married in the right way. And so as a woman, measure that man and measure him. Let him prove consistently that he is headed down that narrow way. Okay? So let me go into my message. Level zero. The zero. Okay, so a zero is a zero. There is a way that seemeth right unto a zero, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, a zero is one who hasn't been awakened. They don't understand that their life is wrong. They are not as they ought to be. And there are some very polished men that fall into the zero category. But they are not in alignment with truth. They are not in alignment with the true measurement of a man. So therefore, they still are a zero even though their life has more polish than a lot of Christians. It's because they've never come into alignment with God's pattern. And if you want to begin to grow one through ten, then you must submit at the most basic level and say, God is right, I am wrong. There is a way that seems right unto the zero. But its ways lead unto death. It is not truth. It is death. And he must shift his pattern. And behold, and and beheld among the simple ones, this is in Proverbs, I discerned among the youths a young man void of understanding. And this is in the context of talking about the strange woman or the adulterous woman. And it says, the strange woman, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stalks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. If you see the slaughterhouse right in front of you, and a little carrot dangling in front of, it, in front of you, a zero doesn't have the grid. And there's a way that seems right. And they go, oh, there's the carrot. And they go right into the slaughterhouse. And they don't recognize that that way leads to death. A zero cannot discern the difference between truth and life. They don't have the equipment spiritually to realize this leads over a cliff. And so just like we were learning about the lambs that follow, so is a zero. He sees where the culture is going. And public opinion polls are saying this is the way. And so they follow it blindly, not realizing that what they're participating in is literally destroying them. That's a zero. Level one, the gripped. This is a man gripped by God. One taken out of the waters. The Welsh Revival used to give an illustration of the three degrees of faith. And the first one starts in the rough ocean waters where a man is drowning. He didn't realize he was drowning, but suddenly something awakens within him. And he begins to realize that he doesn't have life where he's at. Waves are crashing over him. Now he's starting to gulp down water. He's been in this situation for years, but he hasn't known it. And then suddenly he's awakened. And he realizes, I'm drowning. I need help. And in comes the gospel message. There is a ship on the high seas that is there looking for you. But it needs you to cry out to it, believing that it is there. And the moment you cry out, it will find you. And so that man at the most basic level cries out. And he says, Jesus! The next thing you know, he's gripped. It's his grip on the side of the boat, and it's God's grip on him. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God, and he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry came before him even into his ears. He sent from above... He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. He brought me forth into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. This is the most basic level of development. And I know that this translates not just to men, but to women. But I'm building a case for the concept of a man. 
A man must be rescued from himself. A man must be taken out of those waters. A man cannot remain in those waters in the subversion of this culture, of this perversion of the world, of the, mental, uh, the mentalities of sin and carnality. He can't live there and survive. He must be lifted out by a strong arm that is other than his strong arm. We as men, if we're thinking, what's a great man? A man is strong. The very beginning of a strong man's life in Christianity is one that has to become weak. It's completely backwards. We have to become weak and say, I'm dying here. I'm dying here and I can't save myself. I'm too weak. And then the strong arm of Christ can come in and rescue us. The reason we as men don't want that as the solution is because it starts with weakness. We don't want to be weak. wasn't trained to be weak. My dad told me to be strong. Feel this handshake. And we like crush some bones. You see, I'm strong. I can do what I need to do in this life. I can save myself. You can't save yourself. And a great man starts at that beginning. That is the beginning point of Christianity. It's being rescued out of the deep waters and and, and testifying to all the heavenlies. I am weak, but he is strong. I am not sufficient in and of myself, but he is. I am wrong. He is right. I submit. Have me, Lord Jesus. You have yourself a one. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. It's a defection. When you choose Jesus, when you choose to be rescued by Jesus, it's a defection out of one kingdom into another. You need to realize, just like in the olden days, back in ancient Israel, when Saul was rejected as king of Israel, and David was chosen, King David, the guy that stood against Goliath, he's chosen, he's the better man, but Saul didn't recognize it. So Saul stayed seated on his throne, and he hunted David, 21 assassination attempts, And I want you to realize that when you choose Jesus, you're choosing your rightful king. And you're defecting from your loyalties to Saul. And I want you to know that when you do that in a small little nation like Israel, you become the hunted and the despised. You are literally choosing the harder way. Because you're saying, I recognize King David. Saul doesn't deserve that throne. David is the rightful king according to God. And so I am going to side with David. And all David's mighty men, they lived in caves with rocks as their pillows. Christianity starts with, are you willing to be gripped by God? To be gripped by God, you must yield. You must acknowledge your weakness. He will take you out and rescue you. And you will participate in the building of his kingdom. David was the rightful king of Israel. And in due time, he took the throne. It's the same way we are today. In due time, Jesus will take his throne. But those that take it with him are those that in this season of persecution ally with him. Jesus is not popular in the world today. He is politically incorrect in the world today. You choose to side with him, not because of his popularity rating, but because he is the rightful king of the universe and of your life. Level two, the given. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, you're lifted out of those waters and you're lifted out and your feet are put on solid ground. You're like, thank you, Jesus. What is the next thing that should flow out of your life? Thanksgiving. You should give unto Jesus everything that is due his name. The story that Jesus himself said must be shared with the gospel. Every time the gospel is shared, it's the story of Mary of Bethany breaking open the spikenard. The most precious thing she had, it was worth a year's wages. And she broke it out upon his feet and anointed him with that precious spikenard. And the the whole aroma filled the room. And Jesus said, what this woman has done to me will be given as a testimony of what she has done. And it should be shared when the gospel is shared. Why would that be shared? What a strange story. It's because the essence of the gospel is taking, going into the pantry of our life and saying, this belongs to Jesus, this belongs to Jesus, this belongs to Jesus. And you pour it out upon him. And it's extravagant. And everyone around you, in all the situations, when anyone did that to Jesus, they always balked and complained. Hey, that that could be sold and given to the poor. This is inappropriate. And Jesus would always stop them and defend. He says, what is poured out on me is not extravagance. It is right. It is appropriate. Anyone who would follow after Jesus, those that have been lifted out of the waters, the first thing they do is let go of their life. Open their pantries to Jesus Christ and say, have my life. Take me. A level two man is a given man. 
So we have the gripped, and then we have the given. This is the formation, the maturing of a man. They are starting out and getting up on that horse, being bucked off, and they're realizing, what do I need to do to stay on that horse? Give up your life. You want to know how to ride the, the, the wild steed of Christianity? You give up your life and let Jesus Christ enter in. Let him have you. Become his house. And he will ride that steed because he's the only one that ever has been able to throughout all history because that white steed is perfect righteousness and there's no man that can possibly stay on it. It's a wild stallion. But when Jesus comes into a man and takes him and the only way for a man to have Jesus come in is for us to die, is for us to give up our way of living and to allow Jesus his rightful place. Level three the immovable. Okay, I'm starting to get excited now because now we're starting to get, I mean, the gripped, the given, the immovable, the man who is unshakable, he stays on that steed and it doesn't matter what winds blow against him, what tree limbs are low-lying, it doesn't matter, he is immovable. He is stationed on the back of that steed because God is in him and he is rooted to a rock and he will not be moved. His heart is fixed, and it doesn't matter what evil tidings come. He will not be shaken. This is the essence of what God does in a man. But I'm not saying it's the finish. It's the beginning. God roots a man on a rock so that he can go the distance as a man. Most of us, I would say, as far as our vision of masculinity, well, this, is, this is pretty high here. A level three? A level, I mean, this is just what I'm saying is marriageable. And I'm saying it's three out of ten. This is huge. And you know how few men on planet Earth have the stability of soul. That no matter what darkness is around them, no matter how difficult the situation is, the mountains are crumbling, the earth and the sky are peeling away, the financial systems of our world are collapsing. doesn't matter if swine flu is breaking out all around us. It doesn't matter. A man of God is immovable. A man of God is the one that everyone in culture comes to and says, okay, you're stable. I don't know why you're so peaceful right now, but could I have some of your peace? A man of God is the one, is the refuge for everyone else in a time of storm. He's immovable. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Level four, the harnessed. It is one thing to be brought out of the waters. It is another thing to give up your life. And what you'll realize is when you give up your life and you say, I die to that, I open up my pantry, that you don't realize yet that there is more to your pantry than what you opened up. It wasn't because you did anything wrong. You opened up what you knew to open up. So when God says, could you give that to me? And you're like, that's everything I have. He doesn't correct you on that. He just says, could you give that to me? And then what you begin to realize is that there's more to your life than you realized. There's more dimensions. There's more layers. And he says, um, I need that too. That, what, that, that. I can't live without that. He says, you can live. You'll live by me. And you, won't, you will no longer live on that. We have different fuel sources in our life. And God wants to cut them off so that he can become the sole fuel source to our existence. He wants to break us to harness. That where he has us and he holds us. And wherever we go, it's because he is going there. One thing you see in the life of Jesus is that he actually, even though he was God diminished himself to become as we are, to become a man. And he was harnessed by the very same spirit that is supposed to harness you. And he only spoke what the Father was speaking. Could you imagine never opening your mouth but when the Father was speaking? Could you imagine never going anywhere that the Father wasn't going? Could you imagine not doing anything what the Father wasn't doing? How would that even work? Jesus himself modeled this life. It's the measurement of a man. It's a man who is harnessed by the Spirit, and he only does what God is doing. He is no longer his own. He is bought with a price. This is speaking of the cherubim in Ezekiel 1. And they went everyone straight forward. Whither the Spirit was to go, they went. And they turned not when they went. The cherubim are the most mighty, most powerful, most beautiful creatures in all of God's creation. I know that sounds like a diminishment of humanity. 
But study the cherubim. They are amazing. They're absolutely glorious. Lucifer, by the way, Satan, was a cherub. Four faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle, and the face of an ox. Talk about strength. They have four wings. And when they move, it's like lightning. And when they speak or when they they move their wings, it sounds like the voice of God, like the sound of rushing waters. These are powerful creatures, and yet they bend before the Spirit of God. They only do what the Spirit is telling them to do. They do nothing else. The mightiest creatures, the most brilliant creatures, these creatures could lead nations, as we see with Lucifer himself. They are brilliant, so much more brilliant than any of us. And yet, what do they do with their brilliance? They submit it to God. And they say, God, you take this. You take this incredible creation and you use it and you direct it. And wherever you go, we go. That's the cherubim. How much more us because we're little lambs. These are they which follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. That's you. That's me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Yet we are still here. We're participating, just like the cherubim. They are no longer living. It is not their will that controls their existence. The saints of God are dead to themselves, but alive to God. They are sensitive, and whatever God is doing, they do. A level four man is one that is harnessed, is one that is totally governed by the Spirit of God. And I want you to realize that this is a rare sighting today in Christianity. We have men that can quote the Scriptures, but not a lot of men that can quote it with their lives and be a living epistle, a living testimony of these Scriptures. We know what Paul said, but let us not pretend that we have what Paul is talking about. Let us demonstrate it in our life by first being gripped, then being given. Let's first of all allow God to make us immovable. Let's, and let him establish us on the word of God. Let him have us and let the spirit of God overtake us so that we are ready to be used by him and directed by him. Level five, the misunderstood. I considered calling this one the humiliated. But that might have been too extreme, sort of like my Hitler comment earlier. Uh, but level five, the misunderstood. It seems like it would be a step backwards. Here you are being matured and you've fully given yourself. Why would God have a stage like this? Because what follows is necessitated through this. This must be in the foundation because he must prove the harness and he must prove that he has the man. And so he proves it in and through Allowing a misunderstanding. Allowing this man to walk a narrow channel that is misunderstood by even his closest friends. There is nothing more challenged. I want you to realize this is the template of Jesus Christ. This is what he lived. No man has been more misunderstood than Jesus Christ. But you look at every prophet throughout the ages. What the school of the prophet prepares a man for is to be separate from the world. And ironically, all of Israel was separate from the world. But then amongst Israel, they were the separate of the separate. And the prophets were the separate of the separate of the separate. And oftentimes God would humiliate them to the level where, you know, like, uh, whether it's have them live naked for a season, have them live on their side and eat dung. I mean, we have some of the most extreme stories in the word of God which make no sense to our rational mind. But there was a breaking of these men. What John the Baptist was asked to do by the Spirit of God was not easy. To have this nice little camel skin loincloth and to eat locusts and wild honey and to to truly live a Nazarite existence. Long hair just going all over the place. Repent! Who wants that job description? He was a man. John the Baptist, as according to the measurement even of Jesus Christ, Jesus said, this is a man. He was a man because he was willing to be bent by the Spirit at the deepest levels. Don't measure John based on his clothing or his diet. Measure him based on his cherubic obedience. The man was harnessed, and the man was truly groomed by the Spirit through the deep humiliation that he was asked to walk through. This is speaking of Jesus. And some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? His friend, Lazarus, 
is sick. If anyone could heal him, it would be Jesus. But Jesus is, rest- is restrained by his father to stay away. And Lazarus dies and is then buried and is in the tomb for four days. And Jesus has to walk this. He has to humble himself to it and to say they will misunderstand. They won't realize how much I love. They won't understand that I was only doing the beck and call of my father. And he has to restrain himself to this, this great misunderstanding. And he shows up and Jesus actually weeps. He feels everything they're feeling. That's where the shortest verse in the Bible comes from. Jesus wept. He feels every inch of it. This isn't easy for him. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. He raises the dead on the fourth day, but had to walk through the incredible misunderstanding. He had to hang in front of a nation as a common criminal. I didn't know Jesus was a criminal. No one's saying anything to his defense. Yeah, he's blasphemed God. Yeah, he said that he would raise the temple in three days. Yes, he said all these horrible things. What's your defense, Jesus? And he says nothing. Defend yourself. He says nothing. He was willing to walk through this, to be misunderstood, but he did this from the beginning. It looked as if he was born illegitimately. And he was willing to be raised under this misunderstanding. A great man is forged through such a fire. He is forged through the willingness to bend to the misunderstanding, the humiliation that comes in walking through this age. Are you a man unto men or are you a man unto God? And this is the fire that proves a man unto God and not a man unto men. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. This is the cross. Psalm 22, foreshadowing the perfect prophecy of the cross. Just read Psalm 22. It's unbelievable. And what does it say? Jesus literally ached with this very ache. But I am a worm and no man. Absolute misunderstanding. Come down from that cross. If you say you are who you are, he could have called any amount of angels to his side to decimate all that would raise their lip and mock him. But he lived it. He walked it. He embraced it at the deepest levels. And he set for us a pattern. He set for us a pattern of living, of growing, of maturing. Level six, the hero. Okay, I like this one. In Job 29... I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. I was a father of the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out and I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil out of his teeth. A man is not brought through this so that he could just be a an agonizing you know, testimony of what God does in a man. God builds a man, and he builds strength into a man. He makes him immovable, and he harnesses a man. And then he says, I need to bend you. I need to bring you low. Why? So that he can make him useful. So that there will be a power in that man that is inexplicable in human terms. And it comes through bringing him low and then lifting him high. Jesus took the lowest place and it says, therefore God highly exalted him. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. You go low to gain a strength to stand, not for your own reputation. Your own reputation is already shot. You stand strong for the weak, for the needy, for the lost, Jesus came to seek and save those that were lost. And he was made strong for such a commission. A hero is not a hero for his own namesake. He doesn't care if he's remembered in the history books. He is a hero for God's glory. A hero, we as men try and make one, a level one, the hero. I'm the hero. See me opening a door for a lady. That's a good thing. But oftentimes your motivations are you. To stroke you to be seen by the opposite sex as the man. A man must be brought low to be useful. 
He must get out of the way so that Jesus Christ would be seen through his masculinity. And God wants to make every single man in here a hero. A man who is willing to spend his body and his blood for the weak. As I used to say, because I remember hearing this statement at an orphan uh, conference, where this one lady said, we need to realize that orphans are as valuable as we are. And I would say a correction to that. We need to realize how much more valuable an orphan is than we are. We are ready to spend our body and our blood. If 10 of us guys in here were to rally ourselves together and give our life to protect and and rescue one orphan, it would be worth it in the economy of heaven. See, there's a caste system in heaven. And in the caste system of heaven, Jesus is at the bottom. He's the greatest and he takes the lowest place and he washes everyone's feet above him. He gave himself for the world. And the more mature you get and the higher ranking you get in the degrees of masculinity, the lower position you take and everyone around you becomes more important. They're more important than me. And if there's a bullet flying, you lunge in front of it and take it. Even for someone who hates you, even for someone who despises you, despises Jesus Christ, you show value to those who Jesus Christ shows value for. If he died for them, you'd be willing to die for them. At his beck and call, you have cherubic obedience. Wherever his head looks is where you look. Whatever his head is turning to, whatever it's saying, that's what you do. If he's taking a bullet, you take the bullet. This is David speaking. You want to talk about a hero. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. He maketh my feet like hinds' feet, and setteth me upon my high places. He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation, and thy right hand hath holden me up, and thy gentleness has made me great. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me, that my feet did not slip. I have pursued mine enemies and overtaken them, neither did I turn again till they were consumed." A man is not defeated by any inward demon. A man is not under the thumb of lust. A man is not under the thumb of pride. He is not under the thumb of anger. None of these have hold over him. They are all underneath the feet of this man who has been made a hero. And the reason he is made strong, the reason he is made a conqueror in his own soul, is so that he can become a rescuer for those around him. Because from that moment forward, the man doesn't consider himself. He's not pondering what his reputation would be if he stood next to that unpopular guy. He's not considering what would happen to his own skin if he were to take that bullet. He is not concerned about himself. He is concerned about Jesus Christ and his glory. And his heart is beating for everyone around him. He's forgotten himself. Level 7, the chief. In Hebrews 11, it talks about the men of faith who quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. What we see is when a man demonstrates true, living, real-world, vibrant faith, and he walks it, he's harnessed, the church of Jesus Christ takes notice. If you have ever seen a man in this generation who begins to exhibit these things, the church takes notice. And what happens? He gains a place at the gate. The gate is the decision-making center of any city in ancient world. And so he takes his position at the gate and sits as a chief among them. A man in his making is recognized by the church of Jesus Christ and those born of the same spirit. I was telling the guys in our guy talk last Thursday, I said a knight is not knighted because one day he says, I want to be a knight. Well, that's ridiculous. A knight has to pass tests. And if he can prove himself through these many tests, he still can't say, hey, I passed these tests, I'm a knight. He's recognized as a knight by other knights. It's hard in a generation where there's no knights to be recognized as a knight. However, I don't know exactly how these things get started, but the point is, It's others that esteem the very nature of what we're talking about here that recognize and say, hey, this guy over here, the one that was deeply humiliated, (laughs) the one who has been made strong, who's pouring himself out, and he doesn't care if anyone sees him. Hey, we want you to lead. And they are given a position in the church of Jesus Christ. Today, we have ridiculous men leading the church of Jesus Christ. Not all of them. 
But we have clowns in the positions that are supposed to be reserved for chiefs. We have men that are putting on circus acts under the banner of Jesus Christ. We have men that are lying, that are deceiving, that are fleecing the flock because for their own strength and grandeur and and, and reputation, they fly around in their jets. Meanwhile, while, while the poor children of this earth are starving, they are not heroes, yet they are chiefs. They skipped a few steps along the way. We have a zero that ended up in a seven. This is improper in the body of Christ. We need to measure men against Scripture, not because they can speak well, not because they can dazzle, not because they can leg lengthen, not because they can get people to roar like a lion or fall backwards. We are interested in men that demonstrate the living God in and through their obedience. And they tremble before the word of God. These are men that we put in charge. When I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street, the young men saw me and hid themselves. And the aged arose and stood up. The princes refrained talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles held their peace, and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me. You know why? You know why the nobles and the princes and the young men had such a respect and honor for Job? The next line is, because, and let me read to you why. I'm going to have to go back a few. Because, this is the line, I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind and feet was eye to the lame. I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out and I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked the spoil of his teeth. It was because of that that he held a position at the gate. You become a chief because of your life lived. Not because you have a good marketing campaign. Not because you can create a good website. Not because you have a Learjet and you can say to everyone in your congregation, and you can have a Learjet too. Tell that makes me a little mad. Job 29, 25. This is how Job 29 finishes. By the way, Job 29, for those of you that have never heard me say this, women have Proverbs 31. Men have Job chapter 29. It's the ultimate manly man chapter. I chose out their way and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army, as one that comforteth the mourners. First of all, this is a picture of the ultimate brave heart known as Jesus Christ. He sits as king among his people. And he has that position because of the life he lived. He gained his position. He literally, as God, diminished himself. Though he knew it was not robbery to be equal with God, he still humbled himself and became obedient. And obedient even unto the cross and death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and set him as chief among the church. Level eight, the dead man. When we start out and God begins to deal with us, we think we're dead. Have you noticed that? It's a, it's a weird, strange phenomenon. I'm dead. And if someone said, are you still alive, Eric? No, I died. Strange, but that very day, God will give me a nice little lesson of how alive I am. I'm more dead than I was, but there's an ever-increasing death that seems to take place over us. As John the Baptist says, I must decrease that Christ would increase. We must constantly decrease. There's a lessening of us. But as this man, this man that is chief, you know that famous statement in American history, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely? When men gain a position, what does it do? It goes straight to their head, and now they start to control and manipulate, and it's all about them. So when you give men power, the reason the American governmental system is set up the way it is is it checks and balance, so that no one would allow that power to corrupt them, even though it still does all the time. This is the man. He's made chief. And what happens next? God makes him completely dead. His chief position means nothing to him. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's not here to rule people. He's not here to direct things. He just wants to be with Jesus. He's dead. His his life is just God's. And whatever God wants to do with it, to live is 
to have more and more of Jesus, to see more and more of Jesus Christ expanded, his glory, his kingdom expanded on this earth, but all he wants is Jesus. That's all he eats, and that's all he feasts upon. Someone sticks a steak dinner in front of him from this world. He sets it aside, and all he wants is Jesus. Could you give me more Jesus, please? Well, that's bland. It's not bland to me. It's the greatest feast. And only a man who has been grown in this level understands the difference between a worldly feast and the Christ feast. But he's a dead man. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. This is Jesus speaking in the Garden of Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus died right here. He's faced with the greatest challenge any man in all of history has ever received. To carry the weight and the iniquity of the entire world. Not my will, but thine. He was a dead man. He was a dead man in Gethsemane. You know when you sweat great drops of blood, do you know that that's the sign? Medically speaking, that you're about to die. Jesus was literally in agony. There was no more of him. It was all God being evidenced on earth through the shell of a man, completely broken to the point where where will you carry the weight? Whatever you ask. Whatever you ask, even if it is to my absolute annihilation, mockery, humiliation, for your glory. I don't care if I hang naked. I don't care if they scourge me. I don't care what they do. If every bone in my body is broken, if they pierce me, and I am numbered amongst the transgressors, they all consider me a fool, a liar, a cheat, and a criminal. My life is yours. Don't pretend that you're here if you're not. If you're at a zero, don't act like you're at a nine. If you're at a zero, don't act like you're at a two. Own the position you're at. Understand that God is building. And if you haven't even yet relinquished your life, then don't pretend that this is your prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Your prayer is this at the most basic level, saying, God, I realize that I really want to be a doctor. Not my will, but thine. That's the beginning. But that's not complete death. So just know God is growing you up under the full measure and the full stature of Jesus Christ. And he is a lot greater than you are. And his evidence of this masculinity or this greatness of manhood, the greatness of what humanity was to be on earth, is so far beyond what we are demonstrating. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. You stick any of us on that cross, falsely accused, naked, our reputation is hanging in the balance, our poor mom is sitting out there, we need to defend our name, defend her name because you're her son. Do something, say something. Almost every single one of us in here would not take that. There's something still alive within us. And it would be brought to the surface at the crucifixion scene. Would you take that false accusation and not open your mouth? Hang there naked and allow them to think whatever they want when you're the king of kings? Speak! Say something! He was dead. He was not defending himself. He was walking it for the glory of God. You know that if he opened his mouth, he would have not been the Messiah. He had to be dead. He had to have nothing of himself alive to demonstrate that he was the Messiah because the canon tested him on this point. He had to match with Isaiah 53 to perfection. And if he didn't, he could be stoned as a false prophet. He was already dying. They could have brought out rocks and hucked it. He would have been false, but he was true. And a man to be a man to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven on earth must be dead. Level nine, the mighty intercessor. At the hero level, you begin to realize that God is making you strong to pour out. And you become an intercessor for the weak. And as Reese Howell's story goes, there was a a young man in a tin mill that was, you know, bedraggled and everything. And and Reese stood strong for that man. And then there was a woman that was struggling with tuberculosis. And he stood for that woman. And then there was a village that he stood for. And he literally gave of his own resources in a time when there was going to be a strike. And he was like, I will stand and I will make sure that everyone in this village will eat. 
The stories of ever-increasing strength demonstrated through this man's life is just astounding. But I want you to realize that what God is building is something bigger than just a hero. And he's building more than just a chief and a dead man. He is building someone who can stand in the gap for nations. And I do not know that many in this room, including myself, that are ready for such a job like that. We might be ready to take a poor person and to stand and to give of our own pocket to them, to give from the own, our own food on our table for them. But are we willing, are we made of the stuff of heaven to stand and take the hit for something greater than just a few? A mighty intercessor is one that is built to die for a great deal more than a few. He is standing in the gap for a nation. And God is looking to and fro for such a man who will be used of God in this generation to stand for the dying America, for the dying North America, for the dying South America, for the dying Asia, for the lost in Africa, for the lost all over the Middle East, whose blood will be spent. The famous line in Africa where the Muslims were, were encroaching upon South, the southern portion of Africa, and literally there's a line in Africa that marks the blood of the martyrs. And it went no further. Are we willing to make a line with our life? Because a mighty man, a man built by God, is built for such a task. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. This is Paul speaking. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I have trouble praying this prayer. I've looked at this prayer. I've studied this prayer. Paul would wish himself accursed from Christ that the nation of Israel would be gained. That is a depth of maturity in a Christian man that is beyond what most of us can comprehend. What did Jesus do upon the cross? He stood in the gap for all of us. What did Moses do for the nation of Israel? God, blot my name out to save them. Blot me out. What kind of maturity must that be to actually not just take advantage of God's kindness and say, blot me out, knowing he won't, but knowing that he may very well do it if it would mean the rescue of the lost and the dying. Blot me out to save them. That is a level of maturity that we must not act like we have if we don't have it because it diminishes the real thing. Let us esteem it. Let us esteem it in Jesus Christ. Let us esteem it in Paul. Let us esteem it in Moses because these men were intercessors in their generation. They were mighty, mighty men. He hath poured out his soul into death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Level 10, the measure of perfection. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what the church is about. We press people on. So many in the church today have wrapped themselves in the cloak of righteousness, Jesus' blood, and say, I'm forgiven. And they never realized what that forgiveness was for. It wasn't just to get you into heaven. It was to get you into the throne room of grace so that you could partake of Jesus Christ in all his fullness and he could enter in and he could have you and he could make you and he could take you and grip you and take you out of those waters. And then he could harness you and he could remove the junk from your existence and he could make you rooted in a rock and make you immovable in this generation. And he could break you to harness that, harness that whatever you, he asks, whatever his word dictates, you do without asking questions. You do. You're governed. And then he could take you anywhere. And he could humble you to the deepest levels and ask you to do anything in this generation. You do it without a peep. And then he'll raise you up and he'll make you a hero. And then he'll set you in positions of leadership in this generation because you are a man who is humble. You are a man who is broken and you only do what your God wants. You have no personal agenda and that power will not corrupt you. 
And then he'll raise you up to the point where you are dead. And he'll make you an intercessor for more than just a few. You will give your life for the many. And whether or not any of us ever reaches a 10, this side of heaven isn't the concern. The concern for us is that we know what Jesus Christ died for. And how dare we stay a zero or a one or a two if he died to make us tens. If he died to reveal the nature and the fullness of Jesus Christ here on earth through his saints, then how dare we stop short and justify our mediocrity under the banner of something selfish for his glory, for his honor, and for his praise. We say, have me, Lord Jesus. Take me forward. If you're a zero, it's time to become a one. If you're a one, it's time to become a two. And you can just follow that sequence up the chart. The church isn't that impressive today. And if you ask me what numbers we are showing in the church, I don't even want to say it. It's not very pretty because we're full of zeros in the church. We're full of men and women who have never even discovered who Jesus Christ is. Yet we talk about Jesus Christ all the time. If you know who Jesus Christ is, your life changes. You are not as you once were. The greatest detriment to the body of Christ today and to the truth of Jesus Christ and to the Bible today is the church who's living under the false banner of being one through ten when there is zero. There's no greater mockery than that. So may we not be part of the problem. I don't care if we're all ones. At least we can be honest ones pursuing two. But I want us to be growing. I want us to be going somewhere and not stagnant in our mediocrity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Eric Ludy, pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. More information can be found on our website, www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. Know that we are cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.